welcome to the Anchored by Faith podcast, a Reformed Baptist podcast with the goal to hold to Scripture to be conformed to the image of God. My name is Colton Wright, and my co-host over here... Logan Batisti. And we are coming at you on a Monday night. Man, if ever we could get back to a consistent schedule. It's been a crazy month with everything that's just been going on. Right, and I mean... Can blame it on a sinus infection this time, I guess. Yeah, we were just trying to be a little safe. And careful. Yeah, we got to... It is the season to be sick. Yeah, since like three quarters of our church has been missing for a month now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, the bugs made its way around, I think, twice to some people that we know, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah. It's nuts. I don't want to get sick. I've avoided it so far. I don't know how. Don't but, uh, don't jinx yourself. Yeah, you better, still have a kid. It's me knocking on wood. <laughs> <laughs> Doing something. I yeah. He hasn't been too bad. We thought he well. He had something because he had to go to the doctor a month ago. No, no it, was it was like two months ago. It was last week. Was it last week? Yeah, he went last. I didn't know about that one. Oh yeah, he went last Monday or Tuesday because he was he was acting kind of funny. And then uh, he got a little rash, and so we, we took him in, wanted to know what it was. And the doctor said, well, he just passed a virus. And it was like, oh, okay. Yep. He wasn't really he worried about it. really wasn't showing any symptoms. I mean, he, he had a small fever, but he's teething at the same right. time. So, so it's hard to tell it's when it's to, actually something. Yeah, besides that, you know, he's just being a little fussy and a little, little fever every now and then. But it was really sporadic, so we just thought, oh, it's just teething. But... Anyway. Otherwise, so far, my family's staying healthy after getting sick the one time, so. Yeah, you guys got the 24-hour bug, or? It was more like a three-day thing, man. Oof. But, I mean, I I got to work through it. Not, <laughs> you got to work through it? That's not a, <laughs> I wouldn't call that an optimistic thing. I gotta make money somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I never ran a fever or anything, so. Otherwise, Kyra stayed home a day or two. I think we didn't go to Sunday church or one of the Sunday churches because she she was sick. So, and then Scarlett was sick too at the same time she was. So, yeah. I mean, this is you know I'm not really scared of the the COVID, but I, I'm scared of really just about everything else. And it's going around. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really hitting this our community pretty hard. But, yep. So what have you been up to? How's your week been? I've been up to nothing but work. And then I finally started reading The Mortification of Sin. Oh, how are you liking it? It's good so far. I mean, it's written in the old English, but yeah. it was $1.99 on Kindle. So It's a really good book, though. Mm-hmm. It is. the uh, That was Jonathan Edwards? No. John Owen? That's John Owen, yeah. Showing. I get them confused all the time. I don't know why. But, I mean, it it is a fantastic book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've enjoyed it so far. I think I'm on chapter five. And then I caught up in her Bible. I'm not completely caught up, but, like, I'm within a week now. (laughs) And I was, like, a month behind, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. Knocking them down. Yep, just did some hard reading through, through Isaiah. and Oh, there's another long one. Is Deuteronomy was the other one. Like I read all of that in what one day or something like that. 
Not all of Isaiah, but it was like chapter 36 through 66 or something like that. Man. And I caught, oh, and the other one was the Psalms I went through. And that was like from 80 to 155 or Uh, 150. Every time I forget, you know, I forget how long Psalms really is. Right. (laughs) Until you're, until you're about at, you know, Psalm 90 and you're like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't realize this until maybe a few months ago. But I never understood completely why there were five books in the Psalms. But it's because it's supposed to be set up like the five books of the Torah. Huh. I feel like I may have heard that before, but I, I had completely... Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize it. But yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be beneficial. I mean, that's why chapter one is the way it is. I know I've heard before that they're not written in chronological order. You know, we tend to think it's one, two, three, four. That's how they were written, but it's that's not really the case. Not at all. Nope. Well, you're over here crushing it, and I am still trying to read Son of God Incarnate by Stephen Willem, and almost finished halfway through. I was like, this is, it's my first book of the year. I don't. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's my first book of the year, too. Yeah, I'm going to try mm-hmm. to be consistent mm-hmm. on having a reading list this year, but we'll see how it goes. I want to read a. I have to look at the book again. I think it's a holy, uh, a holy life called for devotion by William Law. Mm. I think that's who. It's a. I hadn't heard of that one yet, but um, I've got it. I have to bring it out, and I really want to sit down and read that. Regardless, that is like my objective. I need to read it this this semester, um, and. Stephen Wellen book. I, I, I want to finish it. It's a really good book on the deity of Christ mm-hmm. and the workings of Christ. And I want to read um, uh, I had one more and it escaped me. Oh, uh, Douglas Wilson's book um, on Revelation. I want to read that. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to read next. I just now have a whole bookshelf that I have books on, but I haven't really read. <laughs> so I figure I need to really start knocking some of those down. Yeah, I, I hear you. My bookshelf is piling up with books that I have not read. Good books that I haven't read. Right. Or that I've halfway read. I'm just, uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm the, the player they put in for the first three or four innings. <laughs> Like the starting pitcher, yeah. I guess. Star- but I'm a bad starting pitcher. <laughs> like, like I'm not the first or third string. I'm like the last guy in the rotation. <laughs> you know, they they put in. No, you're probably the injured reserve guy that they had <laughs> yeah, to call in for for COVID. Yeah. That we're down to nobody else, and we yeah. had to put in. No, yeah, just I was. Kidding. <laughs> I was the I was the minor league third stringer that got called up through COVID. <laughs> oh my goodness, that'd be wild. <laughs> hey, that'd be a pretty cool shot, you know. Yeah, for sure. Kinda, as long as you would actually have a decent start at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As long as it wasn't, you know, twelve, twelve nothing in the first inning. You know. Yeah, for sure. I don't think you'd make it that far in the first, or I don't think you'd make it to twelve. They would probably call the first pitcher out by eight. You're probably right. If not by six, <laughs> <laughs> you're probably right. So, last episode, we're currently in the series of. Lamentations, right? Mm-hmm. You actually preached your sermon from Lamentations 3 on Sunday. 
Yeah. Which we'll cover in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Today we're doing Lamentations 2. And then last time we did Lamentations 1. So let's give a quick review of what Lamentations 1 was. It's going to throw you for a loop. It's going to throw me through a loop. So Lamentations chapter 1, which just keep in your mind that these, these are five separate poems, but at the same time, they do intersect with one another. They do kind of build, but they can really stand by themselves. And so Lamentations chapter 1 really depicts Israel as the this uh, widow, this woman who is uh, desolate, who is, you know, everyone's abandoned her. And you you see this, the start of this abandonment in chapter 1. Yeah, and not just leaving in this picture of desolate, but a widow who has once, like, had a grand life, mm-hmm. who everybody envied, everybody wanted, or everybody thought was beautiful at one point in time. And then you go down and you go through the rest of Lamentations 1, it just explains the state of where Jerusalem is at at this point in time. And for those of you who haven't been listening, Lamentation is written around during the time of 587 BC or around that time with the destruction of Jerusalem from the Babylonians laying siege to it and taking away some people for exile, destroying others. And what we'll see in Lamentations, actually at the end of Lamentations 2, is how graphic and how agonizing this really is. I mean, Mm. it's not something that's just, oh, we surrender, we surrender, we surrender. Like, people are starving, people are suffering, Mm. people are in anguish over what's going on during the siege. It's not a cute picture at all. Yeah, this isn't your cute little first Bible story of David, you know, all clean cut and shaven and looking sharp and he throws pillows at Goliath and he falls down. No, this was, this is raw stuff. You can feel the emotion of Jeremiah, the prophet, as he weeps for the city, but he also is weeping, he's weeping for the city um, and he's weeping for himself at the same time. Right. And so, just kind of going into Lamentations 2, I mean, a guideline that is out of Steve Smith's commentary is three points. The first part is action, which is God's rebuke, which you look at verses 1 through 9, and you can kind of see that. Then in the second one, you see silence, reacting to God's rebuke, which is verses 10 through 17, and then responding to God's rebuke which would be 18 through the rest of the chapter. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this this chapter that, so to me, is the recalling. I mean, chapter 1, there was, there was some intertwining of other Old Testament context, but chapter 2 really starts to bring in a lot more imagery of, maybe you could say, symbols um, that could recall to Israel's mind something that God had done. Do you want to go ahead and read it first? Let's just go ahead and break it up that way. We'll just do, and do one, one through, through nine. nine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lamentations 2, chapter 1 through 9. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He has cut down in fierce anger all the mighty of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with the, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughters of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste in his booth like a garden, laid in ruins, his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in the fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of, of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The, the law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. All right. So, one point something out here. One through nine points to a simple thing over and over again. In fact, if you count, I think the number was or 26 times at least that it says God has. Hmm. Realize that this is saying God, not just as a protector of what we see in a lot of the Old Testament. He's not the one who's redeeming his people. He's not the, I mean, eventually he will be, but at this point in the stage, he is the one who is tearing down Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Babylonians are doing it, but ultimately it's ascribed to God. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary thought because, I mean, it still happens nowadays. Mm-hmm. Not in that exact fashion. And it's a special case because of Jerusalem and the Israelites. But God still disciplines his children. And then because of their actions, their consequences, their sins. Mm-hmm. It's not something that God just completely washes over. I mean, yes, sin, the gospel does do that, but sin still has consequences mm-hmm. that still are followed through. I think people, we, we tend to parrot that God is sovereign. We tend to say God is sovereign and we tip our hat to it. But when the rubber meets the road, when we have to really put our theology to the ground you realize that God is sovereign even in the pain and suffering and anguish, even in the even in the wrath. The wrath of God is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And he for Israel here is this is an active wrath. It's a just, perfect wrath. It's a wrath that was well deserved. And we don't like to talk about wrath because we like to picture God as our loving genie in a lamp that, you know, we say a magic prayer, and we do the right things, and we can appease him. But we have to realize that we, as sinful human beings, fall short. And sometimes we fall short very big. And our sin has consequences. Now, it might not be as severe as Israel's here in these passages, but our sin still has consequences, like you said. Right. And we might not understand it at first. We might not see it. But there's it's clear in time and time again, that this is a trait that God does. I mean, mm-hmm. God's a just God. He has to give justice out just as much as he does love. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, how could he be loving if he's not just at the same time? Yeah. And as the perfect being that he is, he has to punish sin. I mean, we realize that he ultimately, yes, did punish sin through Jesus Christ, but he still has to punish sin even in this life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the cosmic picture, yes, you know, Jesus Christ did bear God's wrath in order to save us from our sins, but that doesn't mean that you get a go-free pass. You know, we still have consequences. We still suffer in this world, and Israel disobeyed. Yep. Disobeyed God mightily. This isn't the first time he did it. If you look back in Deuteronomy, you brought this up on Sunday, is that time and time again you see Israel fall away. A generation Mm -hmm. rose up who knew not what God had done. And God let some other people take over them. And he raised up a judge to save them. And then a few years later, they fall away, raised up another judge. And it ultimately follows the path of when you're seeing this, that not only do the people of Israel get worse, but the judges themselves get worse over time. With the last one being Samson. And a lot of us remember Samson because of how strong he was, how cool he was, or at least how much every kid wants to be super strong. And But in the end, like out of all the judges, he was the worst one by far. Yeah, he was not a good man. He's a man who's supposed to be given to a Nazarite vow, which is supposed to be like holy, mm-hmm. strict, mm-hmm. but yet he's a man who eats honey out of a lion's carcass. And if you understand... The Jews were not supposed to touch dead things or else they would be unclean. And as Nazarite, you were supposed to do that even more so. Right. And then what does he do? He goes and defiles himself by marrying from another country and not from Jerusalem. And we even studied an interesting thing is even in the Nazarite vow, he took the honey from the lion, right? right? And he gave it to his parents. So he he also deliberately caused, you know, he made them sin unwittingly. They didn't know what they were doing. They thought it was honey. But he deceived them even more so. So he dishonored his mother and father in that same, you know, same shot. Right. Willingly. You know, it wasn't a passive thing. He thought it was funny. Yeah, because of out of something... I don't remember how the poem I had, went. I have to go back and re- reread it again on that aspect. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he thought this was funny, and and so you you get from, you know, on the, and judges you get from Gideon, who was, pretty decent fellow, mm-hmm. you know, not a bad guy, to Samson, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, yeah. With is Samuel technically the last? I guess t- se- technically Samuel's the last judge. Yeah, I think because actually yeah. Samson and Samuel, I think, are contemporaries. Yeah, I believe in the timeline they are. Yeah, I think they're close to each other. I mean, yeah. my timeline's running a little off, but I think I remember that. And Samuel could be, um, he's a unique figure. Which right, you know, Samuel is such a fascinating character in Scripture. He's he's just so interesting right and then like even still he misses the point of when going to choose david Mm -hmm. of where he was supposed to look and see and i mean that's 
great to know that we still miss and even a man who's so close to God misses what's important to God. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we need to stop trying to find it, but that we need to look closer. And it, something that's interesting here, I, um, as I was reading here in in, uh, my commentary by um, Garrett, he mentions how in chapter two here, we talked, you talked about Deuteronomy um, and really going back to the Exodus, uh, verse one, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, which is, if you remember, a cloud. Where was a cloud in, in scripture before? Well, in Exodus, as he led them out of Egypt, what, would he do, what did he do? He put a cloud in between them and uh, the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And so what happens now? He has, what, what, what was that cloud? What did it signify? What signified, in a sense, the judgment getting ready to be brought upon Egypt and the deliverance of Israel. But now the tides have actually turned, and Israel is now under the cloud. They are unable to see the judgment that is about to, for, to take them, which comes down to he has cast down from heaven to earth his splendor of Israel. So he has thrown down Israel and he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. His footstool, what's his footstool? His footstool was Israel. It's hearkening back to the Psalms. And we have it Psalm 110, Psalm 99.5, talking about Israel being the footstool of God. And you're seeing that, that forsaking of the footstool. And, you know, it's just reiterating, paralleling, but it's interesting how at this point, Jeremiah is taking these concepts in the Psalms, which he does throughout, and he crafts them into the lament. And I think it's a great way how he was meditating on Scripture, reflecting on Scripture, and even in his distress, you can still him see he's still reciting Scripture. Mm-hmm. Even in his pain, even right. in the destruction, he's still meditating on Scripture. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to remember, is that when we're in pain, when we're in trouble, we need to remember to look back at Scripture and understand it. I mean, that's the only way that, I mean, it's not the only way, but part of the way that Jesus got through his 40 days of temptation mm, yep. is when the devil came at him with Scripture and twisted it, he spoke it back rightly. Mm-hmm. and followed it and meditated on it i mean that's the way he probably made it through most of his time yeah here on i mean it's the only way he could have because that's what the example was supposed to be Mm -hmm. perfect israelite living by the very word of god itself right and you see throughout scripture over and over again meditate on my word day and night Mm -hmm. let it not depart from your mouth and here you see the lamenter just not letting it depart from his mouth. And it's interesting because he, you know, he's depicting the anger of the Lord. You know, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob and the wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, which is interesting because Jacob and, and Judah, and, and so he's, you know, Jacob is kind of picturesqueing all of Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and so, but all of Israel wasn't under attack. 
just Jerusalem really was. I mean, you can make the argument, you know, surrounding cities. But Jerusalem was being besieged at this point. Right. But he's showing the pain of the entire nation is lamenting. Because at this point, there's there's a division. Right. And we had talked about it a few times now. So yeah. trying to remember when. If it was he, I know we talked about it last night in our small group, but we were talking about how the 10 tribes had split off and then Benjamin and Judah had kind of made their own. Mm-hmm. And the 10 tribes have been taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians are now invading yeah, Judah. Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of this whole division of wow, we were once such a great nation. We were all one family mm-hmm. who wanted to serve God. And then within a generation, messes it up. And it's kind of the way it happens over and over again. You have one time of in Judah where there's a great king named Josiah, mm-hmm. who he brings back the law. He takes down all the Asherah poles. He says, stop following Baal or Baal. And then what happens? It goes back to corruption again. And this is where we come to. It's interesting that in the, even in the divisions that are caused by men, caused by the inhabitants of the land themselves, that God's promise doesn't, extend it it does extend to judah in a singular sense through the davidic king right but his promise still encompasses the entire nation and even in their division he's still holding the nation right together you know jerusalem's being punished but this is a this is pain to the whole nation Mm -hmm. you know he's the division that they've made the lord is not recognizing I mean, he is recognizing, he's saying it, but he's he's sh- drawing back to the tension that they should be drawn to each other. Right. And, and they're not. And he's saying that he'll bring them back as one nation, as his children, and that he's the one who's going to redeem them, which we kind of covered in the first few episodes when we were talking about how he'd write on their hearts mm-hmm. and change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. This was a promise out of that time. Mm-hmm. to them yeah and, and that's you know it's a great uh, illustration or uh, just recollection there calling back to jeremiah who wrote this you know jeremiah 31 what you're talking about how you know the new covenant the point on the new covenant and jeremiah is basically seeing this coming i mean well, not basically he is seeing this coming and as he's seeing this coming he's reminding them prepping them essentially for this destruction and in his few good words that he does say is he has that promise for him that there will be a time of deliverance there will be a time that god will change his people you know there will be a new covenant that is much different than the old covenant Mm -hmm. it kind of makes me think too is like as christians we think that we're like suffering I mean, the whole reason we're doing this is because we don't talk about suffering enough as mm-hmm. Christians. I mean, we don't we don't want to deal with this dark side stuff. We don't want to. No. But in the end, like, if you notice, God didn't take. If Jeremiah is the one who wrote this, then God did not take Jeremiah out of Jerusalem while this was happening. And yeah. like I said, 
keep listening because at the end of this chapter, you'll see how graphic this gets. Yeah, it gets progressively worse. I, I think you hit on a really good point there that he didn't take them out. And we tend to focus on if we're faithful Christians, God's going to preserve us from the pain and suffering. You know, if we're in God's will, well, well it's it's going to be all good. It's going to be good, man. We're Rainbows and unicorns. Rainbows and unicorns. You know, we're like surfer. Yeah, bro, it'll be all right. You know, he's got to look at the bright side, man. Yeah. And I, I was reading, I think it's Acts 6 is after like the disciples and stuff got whipped, they rejoiced in the fact that they had got to partake in the suffering yeah. with him. Not that it was depressing or anything, but that they actually suffered in his name. Wow. You know, we don't, uh, yeah, we, we consider suffering for the Lord is when we, you know, we don't get the parking spot at church. You know, we have to walk the extra 10 feet. You know, that's suffering for the Lord and most of our American church nowadays. You know, I think that is, to be honest, quite a, quite a bit of our problem is the American church. We've just suffered from gluttony. We've been so blessed. We've been so well-fed. Right. We've been so well-nourished that sometimes we don't know what it's like to have that suffering and yeah, it kind of points to one of the facts that I was going to bring up. Walter Brugman observed that the Psalms move from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Stephen Smith further continues this idea by explaining, Life is oriented in a certain direction, and then tragedy brings disorientation. We want to go back to the original orientation, but this is not how God works. Rather, ultimately, he reorients us to a new reality. In this reorientation, we often experience triumph, the end of the story, the reason all this happened to us. We are sheep who walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but in the end, God is no longer the shepherd. He is the host who prepares a table before us, and in a lavish display of abundance, our cup runs over. Hmm. That's well put. We really don't consider we don't really think about the end results we do just focus on our suffering on, on the glory we had and the suffering that we're going through but we don't ever think about the glory that we receive on the other end of the of the suffering no i mean we, we get stuck remembering the past remembering mm-hmm. what we were like what things were once like mm-hmm. but we got to realize that through tragedy and through suffering creates a new reality for us Mm -hmm. it's not going to be the same it's going to be different i'm not saying that it's a quick bang easy fix no to get to the new reality i mean depending on what the suffering tragedy is there's time to get over it but you have to realize that there's a new reality that's going to happen Mm -hmm. and it that's what we miss sometimes you know it's it's a great point because we tend to think of we just look at the example of israel and what do they expect the new covenant to be like? Well, just like the old covenant. They expected the new covenant to resemble just the old covenant. They expected the Messiah to come just as David had come. They expected everything just as it was before, except, you know, reinstituting Israel as a, as a dominant power, not not the 
world-changing events that it would entail. Right. Not that it's a dominating power in the myth. In the in physical the spiritual sense. world. Yeah. But, or it is a dominating power in the spiritual world, but it is not one in the material world. Yeah. And they are and they're running material things over spiritual. Yeah. Which, I mean, we kind of talked about in John last night. Yeah. Is how people were so caught up on the physical things that they missed the spiritual things that Jesus was talking about. And yeah. he kind of had to point it back in the direction of, hey, this is a spiritual matter we're talking about, not physical things. Yeah, how we were dwelling on John 3. And yeah, it corresponds greatly when you see the Pharisees, Nicodemus's mindset, where he's so focused on this physical, I must be born again, you know, how can I enter again my mother's womb? And Jesus simply, no, you must be born again. You know, it is a spiritual change. That's what marks this change. Right. It's not an external change. It's not your will that changes. It's not, sorry, it's not your will by which you change. Your will itself changes. You yourself change. Right. Okay. Back on path, I guess, even though that's all a good tangent to keep yeah. on. Verse three. Yeah. And it's. Fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming roundabout. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. This points to where God is not the protector of Israel anymore. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, he the... is, but he's pouring his judgment on mm-hmm. them. You see the, it's the parallel statements, really. He says it once and then he kind of says it again and rewords it. And that right hand is a status of, the right hand is a status of withholding judgment. The right hand, because who who's in the right hand? It's the enemy. He has cut down his fierce anger, all the mighty of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. It's a right hand of restraint. He has released the restraint, and he's going to allow them now to do what he wants them to do, which is attack and destroy. Right, because Israel is getting its consequences, its judgment. Yeah. I mean, you see this time and time again. He is violently treated. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. I mean, think about that for a second. He let Babylonians go into his temple and destroy mm-hmm. the priest to ransack it and to take from it. And I mean, we see later on that one of the Babylonian kings tries to use some of the cups and stuff from that and then gets judged himself. But it's just crazy thought that God doesn't protect his temple from ransackers. Mm-hmm because of what Israel has done, that Israel is not protecting it, that Israel is not obeying or following their rules. Yeah. It's interesting that the Lord, during when they inherited the land, Israel was at God's right hand. Israel was the instrument of God's right hand. They were the ones that brought judgment upon the Canaanites. They brought judgment upon all the other inhabitants of the land. And now the tables have turned. Now... He's using Babylon to evict them from the land. So you see, you know, he calls in verse 1 under the cloud, you know, and he's he's walking them 
kind of back through the exodus into really Joshua time period of them taking the land. And he's showing them the reversal of that. Right. Because he told them that this was coming. If you Mm. do not follow me, this is what's going to happen. And they did not follow him. It says, The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished, and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunken to the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Folks, if you don't understand, the walls were one of the most important parts of a city in ancient times. Mm. Because if you didn't get past that, there were only a few gates to get in to Jerusalem. Or any city built like that in general. Thick walls mean you could have people bottlenecked through gates. Mm -hmm. And so walls were very important defensively wise. And as you see when they come back later on, one of the the walls are the first thing that they rebuild. Mm -hmm. Because it's the first line of defense. You know, it's it's so easy. Um, Israel strategically had a very great advantage. They were high ground. There's a great place for a for a city to de- to defend a city. They were on a cliff, so there was no way that you could come around them. There was only a few access points. They built a wall around those access points, so they they controlled a lot. You know, it was a very safe city. Right. Yep. Unfortunately, walls do nothing for us nowadays. No, we abolished them. <laughs> oh, I was thinking more about jets and planes and bombs oh. and things like that. They're kind of useless for trying to defend a whole city and a whole country from other people. <laughs> All right. So let's go on to verse 10. And we'll read 18, I think is what it was. Or 17. 10 to 17, yeah. All right. I got you. Okay. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, to what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity, so as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we have waited. 
We have reached it. We have seen it. The Lord hath done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparring, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. So, I want you to keep in mind here. We talked about how graphic this gets, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say it in so many words. But this is talking about kids dying in the streets of Jerusalem because they're hungry. Mm -hmm. Dying on their mother's bosom, in their mother's lap, they die. Right, because they have no strength to carry on because there's no food. There's nothing for them. Mm -hmm. The whole point of a siege is that you cut off a city's food, resources, and water. So there's no trade getting in. There's Mm -hmm. no food to go out. So obviously Jerusalem is on a hill. They have to go out and get food from a field. Mm -hmm. They have to have some source of water. And the whole point of a siege is to cut that off so that the people will surrender from inside the city. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they are completely encapsulated. I, I can't remember in the chronologically at this point. Um, I believe. I don't know if it was Hezekiah who did it though. I can't remember who did it. Someone had actually diverted a river or a creek to flow through Jerusalem. I can't remember who it was, and I don't know what the time frame was. And it was there's time. I'd have to look at that and see because I'd be interested to know if they had it diverted at this point in time, it's diverted to this day. Um, but I don't know if it was diverted then. Couldn't tell you for sure. I'm not good on my timelines, but that'd be kind of interesting to know. But either way, that's exactly how you would do it. You know, you starve them out. Um, I mean, it's a gruesome warfare. It's a long warfare. It's not, it's not pretty, but in war, um, you, I mean, the object of war is you don't want to, you want to avoid as much casualties on your own side. And so what's the safest thing you do? Well, if they're going to wall themselves up and they're going to hide, well, you just wait them out. Yep. As long as you can have the ability to wait them out. Yeah. Because your men get tired. Your men yeah. want to go conquer. Your men don't want to sit and get fat and lazy watching other people die. Yeah. They want to be the ones killing them. Most of the time. And getting their loot and women. Yeah. All right. So. And you you have that. It's. It is that. And at the same time. I mean, Jeremiah faced much remorse uh, through his ministry because he was ridiculed for his pessimistic view of everything. You know, he lamented Israel and foresaw all the pain and anguish they're going to be in. And people called him crazy because oh no it's not gonna happen other prophets are prophesying other things good stuff good stuff and what do you have here your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading i mean we we'll talk i think we talk about this more in the next one too because i was starting to read and study Mm -hmm. but Jeremiah tried to warn the king, just surrender. It's going to happen. Surrender and you will have your life. But no, what does the king do? He runs to Egypt. And uh, an interesting note, I never really grasped this until uh, 
is actually one of those Bible, one of those little clips they have of the books, the Bible on YouTube. Oh. Who's, who does those? Bible Project? Yes, Bible Project. That's who does it. They had a really interesting one. I was watching one on Genesis, and they depicted um, Egypt. Every time Egypt is used in Scripture, it's always negative. It's never positive. Um, when Abraham goes to Egypt, what happens? Bad, negative. Negative. Um, where does the the only, I mean. The only good thing that happens is God uses. A people. He, he uses he, Joseph, Joseph in Egypt but, to bring his people there and yeah. save them. But at the same time, even in that goodness, why they come to Egypt? Because of famine. Why was Joseph in Egypt? Because he was, you know, well, I guess you could say spared from being murdered by his brothers. But for all intents and purposes, he was murdered by his brothers. You know, they wrote him off as dead. So, like, negative, negative, negative. So instead of running to God, the king ran to Egypt for help. Yep. Which then Egypt utterly was crushed. And then so was Jerusalem. Absolutely. Yep. And then, of course, you see, like, the enemies are happy at Jerusalem being destroyed because they're like, wahoo, we get all your stuff. Yeah, and you you see the, uh, in verse 16, you see the arrogance of Babylon. Um, It says, all your enemies rally against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. They have longed for this. And what are they relishing in? We have finally destroyed her. We have done this. We have done this. And yet the lamenter, Jeremiah, knows that it's God behind this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Let's go ahead and finish off 18 through 22. 18 through 22. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like the water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hand to him for the lives of your children, who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom we have dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? And the dust of the streets lie the young and the old, the young woman and My young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day by your anger, slaughtered them without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. It's crazy. It's just painting the absolute hopelessness of what's surrounded them. Right. But I mean, it's... During this time, look back to God, pray to him, repent. But I want to go back. We talked about how graphic this is. I mean, we touched on it, that little one's faint in the street. But could you imagine being so hungry that you become a cannibal? Mm. Not just any cannibal. But you're eating your own babies because you're so hungry and they're dead. Mm -hmm. Because they have nothing to eat. You can't feed them, so... They're not going to last anywhere near as long as you do. Yeah. And you just see the absolute pain and anguish. I mean, I couldn't imagine that as a, I mean, as a father, I couldn't not wrap my mind around that. Right. You know, you can call me pampered or whatever, but I I can't grasp the, 
that level of emptiness. Maybe that need for hunger, I guess. Yeah. And just the the helplessness of their situation at this point that something so natural as a mother to a child is being reversed and mm-hmm. you know instead of life it's death upon death right you know just so many people are dead <laughs> yeah yeah it's very bleak mm-hmm. which is i said sunday i said yesterday um i think that's why a lot of us ignore lamentations because this book is not nice it is very rough you know you don't read this book and go away with a warm fuzzy feeling in your heart if you do that's kind of scary yeah i'm a little terrified <laughs> you know when we get to chapter three you could you could feel a little fuzzy right. thing for a second and then it goes quickly down the drain again but mm-hmm. but there's a second you know a few verses where there's a shine right when you feel this pain and this suffering us as Christians want to close the book and walk off, but that is what makes, that's what well-rounds us. Mm-hmm. We become lopsided, we become so imbalanced in our view of life that the, in my opinion, the prosperity gospel has a foothold. Right. I've never heard any prosperity preacher talk about lamentations. I don't know. I haven't really listened to prosperity teachers all that much. I ran away. <laughs> Some, I heard he was one. Uh, I'll go listen to somebody else. Sometimes I just want to know what in Jeremiah felt like. So I just listened to, you know, a few Kenneth Hagin sermons and I cry and then I'm good. <laughs> cry i don't cry at how bad it is yes cry about how bad it is okay that's what i thought but i was like you cry oh not, what not, does this world come to what is this world? oh the agony no right but so this is the end of chapter two and we didn't really touch on this earlier but for the first second and fourth chapters they all have 22 verses why? Because it's an acrostic poem. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it doesn't look like this in our English Bibles. But in the Hebrew language, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And shockingly, in the first, second, and fourth chapters, it goes A, B, C, D. And it's a, that's not what the Hebrew no. alphabet is. I don't know what the Hebrew mm-hmm. alphabet is. Well... I could say it if I remember. I remember some of it, but yeah, I was like, I can do the Spanish one. But <laughs> I can do the Spanish. <laughs> That's about it. You can't. The ironic thing is in Hebrew, it always cracks me up. The first letter is you know Aleph, but there's no sound for an Aleph. It's just silent. <laughs> so really, if you wanted to say your A's, it'd be Be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's just some interesting tidbits. I mean, next week we're gonna do. Lamentations 3. We'll try to do the whole Lamentations 3 in that yeah. time period. There's 66 verses. so That's what makes Lamentations 3 hard. But at this point, everything has seemed dark and gloomy, which is it has. And if you've noticed the trend, it's progressively getting worse. 
<laughs> not it, not better. <laughs> no, not better at all. It actually seems like Jeremiah even is taking a part in the gloom and doom yeah. and loneliness that is going on. I yeah. mean, if you could be untouched by this, there's what's going on, then you have no empathy inside you. Yeah, I think that's what this these poems draw out is the empathy, the empathy for your own soul, for others, right. for, you know, you, you really, this vivid imagery connects you to the pain and suffering of Jeremiah, the nation, and that should drive you, as we go through these deep, dark passages, to God, right? not away from God. Mm-hmm. Because the interesting thing is, is through the book, he doesn't ever say, why God? No, it's never a question of what, how did this happen or why did this happen? Yeah. We don't deserve this. Yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing because we always associate lamenting with that very right. aspect. Oh, you cry out to God. Oh, why would you do that? What? Well, but he doesn't cry out and say why or I don't deserve this or we don't deserve this. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, I know why, Lord, and we do deserve this, but I'm still going to express the way I feel. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So, remember, we're on all the major podcast sites now, I think, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, Leave us a comment on iTunes, five-star review. I heard those help to get you more views. But be honest, we don't care. Yeah, we We love a five-star review, but we understand if we we don't get one. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And... Mm. We do appreciate any comments on Facebook. We really do. Yeah. I mean, message us. Mm-hmm. We both can get it. Yeah, we, I don't we tr- know which one's going to respond. But we, we try to be pretty punctual about responding on Facebook. So we do thank all those that have uh, just asked us questions or talked to us on Facebook. We really do appreciate all your comments and uh, just thank you guys for listening. Yeah, for sure. All right. My name is Logan Matisti. My name is Colton Wright. Thanks for listening to us, guys. And God bless.